Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. We were worshiping this morning, right now. I start thinking about when I start beginning when I started to begin ministry, and and as you've gone through hundreds upon hundreds of services, and you know the ins and outs of how a service can go, and there are times you notice things that, and Mike might kill me right now, but you might notice some things that are just a little bit off. You know, and, and you're like, oh, you know, that's going to detract from service. But I'm going to tell you something. When I see those things and I see the Holy Spirit overcome it anyway, it blesses me. And that's what I look forward to. When I come to church, I come to see all of you, and I see the Holy Spirit working in your life and then overcoming things that normally might go, oh, man, I can't believe that happened. No, it doesn't matter. We're here for one purpose. That's to glorify God. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to glorify God. If you open your Bibles this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we're going to start a new sermon series this morning. No claps. Okay. All right. No problem. Yay. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read that for you this morning. Says Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly, mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so this morning, we're going to talk a little bit about what it is to be an impactful church. How do we in Winton here become or maintain being an impactful church? Well... In the introduction this morning, we see that the church of Thessalonica was truly an exemplary church. Because this letter to the Thessalonians is one of the few letters not written to address a concern or some doctrinal error or maybe a wrong behavior in a New Testament church. 1 Corinthians was written to set the Corinthian church right on several sins. Uh, doctrinal fallacies, um, 
division over their leaders, uh, open immorality of one of its members, members going to court against one another, the abuse of spiritual gifts, abuse of the Lord's table, and false teaching on the doctrine of the resurrection. Paul wrote to the Galatians to correct the doctrinal error of mixing faith with works. And Colossians was written to combat a false philosophy called Gnosticism that had crept into the church, a subject also addressed by John in the three epistles. But 1 Thessalonians was not written to deal with any known problem within the church or wrong conduct that had been taking place. Note verse 7, so that you were in examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. You see the word there in the Greek word tupos, which literally means an impression, uh, the mark of a blow, uh, the impress of a seal, the stamp made way back then, that was what they were referring to. It was the stamp that they made. See, Paul was not just saying that they had been good examples, though they were that. Paul was saying that they had a great impact, or they made a tremendous impression upon all the believers throughout all the regions of Macedonia and Achaia. And this would be like our church making such an impact in Germany that churches all over Bavaria would have heard about us. Now, I don't know if Germany watches this on YouTube, but it's possible. So we need to make an impact, not just for ourselves, not just for our community, but for the kingdom of God. Amen? We need to be an impact. Now, there are essentially two basic types of churches. The church nobody hears about except in a bad way, or cares about, or really wants to go to. And the second of these churches is one that people have heard about in a good way, which has made a lot of positive impressions that the lost are curious about visiting. And, of course, once they get there, they're dedicated. Zealous believers want to be a part of something like that. And that's the kind of church... That Thessalonica was. That's the kind of church I want Winton First Baptist to be. In our study, we want to look at two things. First, how the church of Thessalonica made an impact. And then next week, we'll look more into how it made that impact. So this morning, let's jump in and look at the characteristics of the church at Thessalonica that made that impact to the surrounding churches in that area. First of all, The church of Thessalonica made an impact because it had a mind to work. They were there to work. Verses 2 through 3. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. So... What does Paul point out here that tells us how they made such an impact? Well, I would summarize it this way. The Thessalonian church had a mind to work. I've never seen a lazy church that made an impact for the Lord. 
A church that will impact its community, that leaves an indelible impact on the lives of its own members, is one that has members who say, hey, I want to help too. I want to be a part of that. I want to be on that team, and I want to be on the first string team. Amen? Most churches have five types of people. Now, bear with me. Some of you are going to go, oh, that doesn't sound too good. But the church is comprised of five different kinds of people. Let me, let me explain this. First, there are squabblers. What are squabblers? Well, sometimes they're negative and critical people and are very destructive to a local church. They're too busy criticizing the way things are being done than to actually do anything themselves. Oh, boy, that's controversial. You shouldn't say that because some of you are squirming in your seats. Does he think I'm a squabbler? Well, no? Okay, good. Some are strugglers. They have so many needs that they can't or they won't do much for the Lord. They're the ones who need a lot of support and help uh, during their problems and their trials, and they look for people to pour out their time and their efforts, in which we love to do. We love ministering. To people, I love being a part of that process. I love watching how the Lord can work in somebody's life who clearly thinks that it's not possible. And then that's when God steps in and goes, oh yeah, watch this. And then he makes an impact in their life. Thirdly, some are slackers. I fall in this category sometimes. Okay? These are neutral. They don't hurt a church, but they don't do anything to help the church either. They're satisfied just to come to church and sit and sing and soak in the preaching and teaching. I was ready to sit back here <laughs> and let someone else come up and preach. Why? I don't know. More of a joke. But sometimes we feel that way, don't we? We feel like, oh man, someone else could probably do this better. I could ask Pastor Martin to come up here and he could deliver a great sermon. But that's not what God called for the today, right? But th these are the kinds of people. And then the fourth kind are the supporters. They give financially, they give emotionally, they give the moral support to those who labor on the work. But they would rather have others do the actual work and sometimes they're at a place in their lives when they're not able to do the work and that's about all they can do and for that the church and its leadership and the people around you are forever grateful we really are because that is your call to this service that is your call to help in the efforts of being an impactful church we need those individuals and then finally the last kind is a great kind of person, and that is a servant. That is a servant. Those people not only support the church financially, emotionally, and with moral support, but in addition, they get busy and find a place to work in the local church. And these are the ones that serve as ushers, who pick up those who need rides to church, who teach the children's classes, who work in the nursery, who fix the refreshments for the home groups, and who host those home groups, and visit the sick, and help those who are needy. They are the most valuable for the church because they are what really makes a church work. They are who make the church work, and they make the church tick. 
You are the lifeblood of the church. Notice how Paul talks about the Thessalonians. He uses three different phrases here. He talks about the work of faith, the labor of love, and patience of hope. So let's look at each one of those individually. First, Paul commends the Thessalonians for their work of faith. So how are work and faith interrelated in the kingdom life? Well, faith stirs a Christian to work for the Lord. And when a person believes in Jesus Christ, and I mean truly believe, he or she is stirred to work and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. The same is true with a body of believers or a church. The stronger the faith of the people in Christ, the stronger they will work for the Lord. A strong faith stirs, arouses, activates, and energizes believers to collectively work and carry out the mission of Christ. Turn to me to James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. James chapter 2, 14 through 17. James says this. What doth it profit, my brethren? Though a man say he hath faith and have not works, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warned and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it had not works, is dead being alone." What does this scripture teach us about faith and works? Do they go hand in hand? Absolutely. Second, Paul commends the Thessalonians for their labor of love. Love also stirs a church to labor. The word labor in the Greek, kopiao, uh, say that five times real fast, kopiao, which means to toil. To labor to the point of exhaustion. To arduously labor. When a person truly loves Christ, he is prompted and driven to arduously labor for Christ. He looks at the love of God for him in giving his son to die for him. And the love of Christ in being willing to give his life for him. And he cannot help but be stirred to give back to Christ through those works of love. This is what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he said, For the love of Christ constrains us, but we thus judge that if one died for all, then we are all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live shall not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose Again, So what does Paul mean when he says the love of God constrains us? When you hear the word constrain, how do you feel? Even though there's not a feeling, but I mean, how does that make you feel? Constrained. You feel kind of bundled up, right? What does he mean by constraints? Well, constraints really means compels. He compels us. He orders us. He, he, through his words and wisdom, he ushers us into these things that he has called us to do. 
But the question is, do we walk through that? Do we, do we take advantage of that? And see, finally, Paul commends the Thessalonians for their patience of hope. The word hope in the New Testament is frequently linked to the second coming of Christ. And since verse 10 refers to the second coming of Christ, it's probable that this is the patience of hope Paul is referring to. Titus 2.13 says, and talks of this hope, when Paul says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The Greek word for patience is hupomene, hupomene, which means endurance, steadfastness, perseverance. You see, hope in the Lord's return stirs the church to endure its work and labor, knowing that the Lord could come at any time, and we should not face the Lord empty-handed. We need to be ready. Paul said in Galatians 6, 9, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. In other words, what are we waiting for? God says, I could be here at any time. Are you ready for me to come? Are we as a church ready for that day? It could happen in the next 17 seconds. We don't know. It's immaterial because God says we are to prepare. We are to be ready. So when that time comes, we're not going, we're not scrambling to grab what we need, right? This is what the God, is, God is preparing us for. So the first reason the church of Thessalonica made such an impact was because it had a will to work for Christ. We must have the same as well. And second, it made an impact because it had joy in the midst of its problems. How many of you can say that, that you have joy in the midst of your problems? Verse 6 says, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. One of the more powerful things that impress people positively about faith in Christ is when they see us as Christians who have that joy, even in the midst of our trials and our problems. The world cannot understand that. It doesn't understand why we thank God for the trials that we go through. It's always a, why would your God let that happen? Why do you continue to go back for more punishment? Why would we do this? Why would you do that? Because we ought to live up to the philosophy of the tea kettle. Let me understand. Let me, let, let me explain. To be up to our necks in hot water... And still singing. Up to our necks with water, with hot water, but we're still singing. Our problem is that we let circumstances overcome our joy. Rather than just letting our joy overcome our circumstance. A man had cancer and was told he had six weeks to live. And the nurse who came to talk with him over and over again and whom he had the joy to witness to 
she never accepted salvation. And about 10 years later, now granted he had six weeks to live. This is 10 years later. He was on furlough and he called the doctor who did in his surgery to see if he could make an appointment for a checkup. And when the receptionist heard his name, she told him she was that lady that he witnessed to all those years ago. And that the joy and the peace that he had during that trial convinced her of the truth of Christianity. She went to a church a few weeks after he was dismissed from the hospital, heard the gospel again, and trusted in Christ as her Savior. Many years ago when the great missionary Adoniram Judson, a missionary who went to Burma, and while he was there, he went on vacation and he passed through the city of Stonington, Connecticut. And a young boy playing about in the city there, and at the time of his arrival there, was struck by his appearance. Never before had he seen such a light on a human face. And he ran up to the street to the minister and to ask if he knew who the stranger was. And the minister hurried back with him, but became so absorbed in conversation with Judson that he forgot all about the impatient youngster standing by his side. And many years afterward, the boy, who could never get away from the influence of that wonderful face that he saw that day, became the famous Henry Clay Trumbull, the mid-19th century world-famous editor, author, and pioneer of the Sunday School Movement. In his memoirs, he penned a chapter entitled, What a Boy Saw in the Face of Adoram Judson. That lighted countenance. He had changed his life. Just a mere smile and appearance of this man's face who loved Christ made such an impact. Now, granted, this man did not say a word to this boy. But it made such an impact to know that he knew Christ and even through his struggles, he had a smile. He had great joy. And it, and it was pronounced. You see, we can have joy in our trials. How, you might ask? Well, there's only one way. There's only one way. To walk in the Spirit and let His fruit produce in us. Galatians 5, and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. And you know... But do any of you have a testimony of a time when you witnessed a believer experiencing a disappointment or a terrible obstacle, but were able to experience that joy in the midst of that problem? You see, the church of Thessalonica not only made an impression because it had a will to work for Christ and a joy in the midst of its trials, but... It also made an impact because it was bold and excited about being saved. How many of you are bold and excited about being saved? Do we show it? <laughs> we say we're bold and excited, but do we show it? Not all times. We always have those peaks and valleys, and we talk about those all the time. The peaks and valleys of our kingdom life when we're, we're on fire for God, and then the next minute it's like, ah... 
All right, that was great. Let's do something else now. But that's what he's saying here. We need to make an impact because we need to be excited about being saved. Verse 8, from, for, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God is spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. What does, the, what does this tell us about the church in Thessalonica, about making an impact? I mean, they got so excited about being saved. They had to spread the good news. They couldn't keep it in. They couldn't keep silent. And we ought to be excited about the kingdom life. So much so that we're, we're ready to get out of these pews and go spread the word. It's really easy to sit and get excited or it's easy for me to stand here and get excited about what I'm preaching. But if there's no action behind it, what's it for? My benefit? What good is that? What good is it if you keep it to yourself? It's like the people that win the lottery and all of a sudden all the people start calling. Hey, remember me, Joe? No? The point is, we have something to share. God has given something so great to us that we need to be sharing. It should be something that cannot be contained within us. We need to be compelled to do what God called us to do. Pastor Ray Reed's going to talk about this in, in a little while. We need to be compelled. We need to be about the Great Commission. Are you called to do that? Are we called as a church to do that? Absolutely. So we must be making an impact. We must make an impact. But I don't know about you. But my testimony, and when I got saved, was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. It was better than when I married my wife. And it was better than that wedding day. Well, for her. Just kidding. Getting saved was better than when my boys were born. In fact, if you were to offer to trade me $100 billion right now in exchange for the kingdom life, I wouldn't take it. It wouldn't be worth it. Being saved is the greatest life in the world. Tom Wallace tells of his experiences as a pastor over his lifetime. He said it took place on Sunday morning at the church he was pastoring in Elkton. Uh, that's in Maryland, by the way. The Sunday morning service was just getting ready to begin when in walked a man who had never attended church before in his entire life. And he seated himself on the second row from the front. And as Dr. Wallace preached a very simple salvation message, the man listened with keen interest. At the end of the sermon, he came forward during the invitation and a personal worker led him to Christ. He was so filled with joy that he could hardly contain himself. 
And when he was baptized, Dr. Wallace describes how he submerged him in the water. And when he came out of the water, he was filled with so much joy that he came out of the water clapping his hands, shouting, hot dog. (laughs) You see, this excited convert had never been in a church before. And so he never learned the acceptable words like praise the Lord or amen. Hot dog. People in the audience roared with laughter, just like we did, at his innocent ignorance. But he was just praising the Lord with the only vocabulary he knew. And the good, and the good thing about it was he was excited about being saved. He received this great gift, and he wasn't about to keep it to himself. He wanted everyone to know He wanted to share it with them. And that's what we need to be doing. We ought to be excited about the Lord. We all feel this way when we first come to Christ. But if if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we can lose that magic and wonder of knowing the Lord. What causes us to lose our excitement in the kingdom life? Here are several things that I think can cause us to lose our excitement. First of all, sin. We know that sin does that. Wrong response to trials. Are we joyful in our trials? Violation of the Bible's principles of interpersonal relationship. I know, a lot of big words. You'll get it. Neglecting church attendance. Talking about all of you at home. Neglecting spending time in the word. Neglecting prayer. Not sharing your faith. Not having a real Christian life in the first place. That is, not truly being saved. Fourth reason this morning that the Thessalonian church made an impact was because they had been a dramatic change in the lives of its members. Now, I know if I called each and every one of you up here, you could tell me your testimony, everything that went on, and how it impacted your life. And then we could see as a church, wow, that's great. Then what? Remember, that's only part of the story. What are we doing now that's making an impact? When a person is truly saved, there's a change in his or her life. He or she doesn't love the things that they used to love. They don't want to do the wrong things that they used to do and take delight in. They used to find church insufferably boring and the people who attended incredibly strange. But now they love the church and delight in being with those strange people. Who's calling who strange? The Bible used to be a dead book to them. Now they love it and live by it. They used to think Christians were fanatics. Now people think they're fanatic. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are becoming new. 
So what does this verse teach us about salvation and its effect? Romans chapter 6 explains it well. And I've already preached to you at it, so you can check that later. But in the first five chapters of Romans, Paul explains the doctrine of salvation by grace alone. Without any works on our part added to it. In other words, we have nothing to do with it. It's all about God. But then in chapter 6, he deals with the charge that some made then, and we still hear it today in some quarters, that if we preach that salvation is by grace alone, and that our works do not have anything to do with either earning or maintaining our salvation, people will just choose Christ as our fire escape from hell, and then just live however they want. Paul's response says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we, that we are dead to sin, live any longer therein? If in the whole of Romans 6, Paul argues that the believer is freed from the power of sin. Yes, he can. And he will sin. But if he can comfortably live in that sin without God working in his heart and without experiencing judgment from God, without guilt, he needs to re-examine whether or not he was truly saved or born again. Now one reason the Thessalonian church made such an impact was because there was that dramatic change from their worship of idols to serve the living and true God. The lost around them didn't want to miss it. They heard about this, like, wow, I want to be a part of that. Now, most people we know do not worship idols as we normally think of stone or, or wood gods that would, people would bow down to in that day. Yet, we trust Christ for our salvation. There is, nevertheless, a change in our lives. But what kinds of changes take place in the lives of new believers? When the lost see hypocrites, it turns them off to Christians. But when they see people whose lives have been changed by God's grace, it makes a remarkable impact, even more than their words, much like Mr. Judson in the earlier story. We don't have to say anything. That's the beauty of God's grace. We don't have to say a word. Sometimes it's just a... It's a smile. It's a how are you doing today? Even though inevitably we get the response, I'm fine. I'm okay. Even though they're clearly not. But God calls us to those situations. God provides those opportunities for us to help them see the joy in their trial. It helps them to see that we are trying to make an impact in their lives. Not for our own benefit but for the benefit of God. So again, there had been dramatic change in the lives of its members. But lastly this morning, the church of Thessalonica made an impact because it looked with anticipation and expectation for the Lord's return. Look at verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. 
What is the wrath to come that Paul refers to here? The wrath to come refers to the seven-year tribulation that the Bible prophesizes in many places, but is fully developed in the book of Revelation. And this will be a time of unparalleled horror as God pours out his wrath upon those who have rejected him and followed the Antichrist. But it is a great comfort to know that believers will be delivered from this wrath. That is why the Thessalonians were waiting for the sun from heaven. They were anticipating it. They were prepared. They were making an impact where they were. Much like we need to make an impact where we are. We will not have time to look at this in great detail, but let's at least look at the primary passage in the Bible that deals with what is commonly known as the rapture, and that's 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. You don't need to turn there. I'll read. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that we sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and the voice of the archangel with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, this truth of the rapture galvanized the Thessalonian Christians. It roused them. It told them to wait, but they were waiting with anticipation. They weren't waiting like, all right, when are you going to show up? Right? And that's how a lot of us sit. We think, well, if I just come to church and um, I'll, I'll attend that Sunday morning Bible study class or, you know, I'll, I'll listen to Pastor Martin and I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I'll take one of these classes and maybe then I'll be ready. Maybe you will be, but are you anticipating? Are you excited? Are you looking to make an impact? Are you smiling in your times of trials? But the word wait is one that I think is profound in all of our lives. But here the word wait means not to sit around and do nothing. See, the word wait when used in connection with the second coming means the exact opposite of sitting around and doing nothing. It means to be living your life in such a way that is exemplary and would not be ashamed if the Lord should come at that moment. Note two verses along these lines. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him that when we, or when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. 
And in Titus chapter 2, teaching us that denying ungodliness and unworldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. There was a lady in a church whose husband insisted on a clean house. No, obviously not us. Complete opposite, right? But anyways, he expected a clean house. And he went on vacation in another country for a couple of weeks. And so she decided that she was going to take it easy and enjoy herself in his absence. She didn't do any housework for two weeks. I know, this doesn't make any sense, does it? Ladies, you're like, oh, come on. A woman doing that? Yeah, right, okay. No dishes until necessary. No vacuuming. No beds were made. No clothes washed. And etc., etc., etc. Then on the last day, her plan was to rush around like mad to get that house clean. Now, husbands were all laughing because, hey, hey, that's me. <laughs> But he waited to the last minute. And there was only one problem. He came home one day early. And the house was a mess. Now he knew that she wasn't prone to being clean and having the house clean. But he had no idea she could allow things to get that dirty. And she was embarrassed and ashamed. And that's, I think, the way that we would feel... If we weren't prepared for the Lord's coming, we would feel embarrassed. We would feel ashamed. We would say, oh, you know, I was going to get to that. But that's the warning here. How to be an impactful church. We'd be like the church of Thessalonica. We'd be like the people. We, we wait in eagerness, but we don't sit and do nothing. We get active. We get involved. We recognize the opportunities that God places before us and we take them. We do the things that we've been called to do. We wait. But we wait with longing. But we wait with excitement. Let me read this verse again to you. 1 John chapter 2. Now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence. You see that? We have confidence. And not be ashamed before him at his coming. We need to be ready. Be ready at a moment's notice. So that when we're brought up to him in the clouds, we can be there with great joy. Amen. David, come lead in our time of benediction this morning. Thank you. Great message. Christian singer Torn Wells stated it this way. He said, for the enemy to get to my joy, he's got to get to my God. The joy comes from the Lord. Let's not give it away. Thank you for that. Let's stand together, and as we go today... I don't know what you're facing this week. I know some of the things I'm facing this week. Sometimes as we go to the unknown or things that we know are coming, we wonder, how am I going to do this? How am I going to get this done?
I'm going to ask us to memorize this chorus of the song we sang earlier as we go. Let's say it together. What he's done. Let's say it. What he's done. What he's done. All the glory and the honor to the Son. My sins are forgiven. My future is heaven. I praise God for what he's done. Can you live with that truth? Pastor. So when we leave in prayer this morning, please come up and extend the right hand of fellowship to them and let them know that we're happy that they're joining with us. Remember that we have lunch over in the fellowship hall, the nachos, and then we have the uh, Grand Prix race following that. So we hope that you will come and join with us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for our time together. Thank you so much for your love and your grace and the words of wisdom that we are to be in waiting, Lord. But in that waiting, we are to be preparing. We are to be excited, to be joyful, even in times of stress and trials and all that yuck, Lord. You continue to give us strength. You continue to embolden us, Lord. Thank you for your love and for your son that you gave so many years ago so that we can join you in glory in that day. We look forward to it, Lord, and we love you. Thank you for our time together. Again, bless our time this afternoon, and let all the things that we say and do be in honor and glory to you. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great day in the Lord. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.